This is the James Cancer Free World Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today our guest is Dr. Sagar Sardesai. Sagar is a breast cancer oncologist and a researcher here at the James. It's October, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which makes this a great time to talk to Sagar about his research that has shown a link between obesity and increased risk for breast cancer. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Steve. Um, it's great to be doing this. Uh, it's for breast cancer awareness and talking about risk factors. So thank you so much for having me here. It's good to have you. And before we talk about your research and the link, it seems that your family has a connection to breast cancer that played a big role in your career choices and led you here to the James. Can you fill us in? Um, yes. Uh, my family has been battling uh, cancer for a really long time. It was only about 10 years ago uh, when my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer that we realized that this is that there is something that's going on that's making it more likely in in just in our family that a lot of people had a exactly had yes. a lot had cancers and she was treated and thank God uh, she's doing well it's been thirteen years now knock on wood great when I was in my fellowship here uh, in Indiana I met with Mary Claire King at the time who who discovered the BRCA one gene back in the nineties uh, and brought up my family history and and just w- was curious to know how I could get my family tested who much of my family's back in India um, and we got this process started and realized that yes, there is a BRCA2 gene uh, that runs in the family. That's probably the reason why we've been seeing so many cancers in, in the family. So the BRCA gene is the breast cancer gene, and that greatly increases a woman's odds for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and a couple other cancers. Right. And you, wow, your family had had this for generations, right? It probably now makes sense and gives us uh, an explanation of why that happened. Uh, but more than that, I think when you look at all forms of hereditary breast and ovarian cancers, which means that cancers that can be passed on from from parents to, to their offsprings, um, BRCA1 and 2 are two genes that account for about 60% uh, of all of those syndromes or all of those cancers. Um, while we knew that our family history had a consequence in terms of our risk of having breast ovarian cancers. Uh, the, the fact that we can test for BRCA1 or 2 just makes us be more proactive, uh, gives us the knowledge uh, to be more aware and aware of these risk factors and get screening um, and talk about options to prevent breast cancer. Right, because once you know that that genetic mutation is in your family, you can get um, sc- regular screenings and detect it early when it's most treatable. But I'm curious, so since your mom uh, did have the BRCA genetic mutation. How about her siblings and her children, including you? So once we knew that my mom was carrying the BRCA2, the next step was to really inform the family, uh, which is a process in itself, uh, because it's not as easy to share this information as you would think. Um, and it took a while for our family to uh, to realize that, yes, there was a need and that they should get tested and act on the results. Uh, because my sister and I are here, uh, it was easy for us to get tested. And unfortunately, we both carry the BRCA2 gene. Uh, and we are both at varied risks for uh, cancers uh, in, in our lifetime. Uh, but we take that information as knowledge, and knowledge is power. So my sister and I are more proactive. We make sure that we see our doctors. We are getting imaging um, uh, to make sure that... Uh, that if this were to happen, that we would catch it early and act on it then. And I think there's something that people don't realize is that men can get breast cancer. 
Absolutely. So men with men have about a one in thousand risk of breast cancer. So it's much less when you compare the odds to a woman who has a one in eight chance of having breast cancer. But when you specifically look at men with BRCA2 mutations, that risk can be as high as 7% in their lifetime, which is a seven on hundred chance, which is about 100 times higher than and the average uh, male for their breast cancer risk. And you, that's, is that's you. what I would yeah. face in my lifetime. Yes. And, yes. and it's not, and for women who have the BRCA one and two, it's not just breast and ovarian cancers. It's a couple other cancers as well. And for men, it's not just breast cancer, but it's what other cancers are at risk for. So women with BRCA1 or 2 have a 50 to 60% chance in their lifetime of having breast cancer, which often is about four to five fold higher than an average woman with no mutations. And men, we just talked about men with BRCA1 or 2 have about a 7% lifetime chance of having breast cancer. Besides breast and ovarian cancers, the other cancers that have an increased risk in people with BRCA1 or 2 mutations are uh, pancreatic cancers, uh, skin cancers such as melanomas, and there's more data now to say that some GI cancers, such as colon cancers, may, may also, th- that these patients may be at an increased risk for GI cancers. Wow. So that's why it's very important, as your family learned, that if you have a history of certain types of cancers, particularly if they happen at a younger age, to talk to your family physician. And seek it, appropriate care. Yeah. Um, the other thing I would like to mention is, you know, uh, it also helps uh, family members who test negative for the mutation. And it's a huge relief. Yeah. Uh, because when you know that your family is at a risk, uh, you know that there is this mutation that's responsible for cancers in the family. And when a person in the family tests negative for that mutation, it, the risk for that person is not the same as what it would be for the other family members. Without testing, there is just no way of knowing what your risk is. So that family members who test negative for a mutation, when we know that there is a mutation that runs in the family, are called true negatives. And the value of knowing that you're a true negative is huge because you don't have to go through all of those screenings and mammograms and and doctor follow-ups because the risk of, for that person, the risk of cancer is really, really low. The normal rate for everyone. And if you're a true negative, your children can't get it from you. Absolutely. You, you got it. Which is a huge right. relief to know that you, you won't be passing it on. Right. So this is a mutation that does not skip generations. Uh, so if you're a true negative, which means that you don't have the mutation, there's no way for you to pass on the, that mutation to your kids. And if you do have it, it's from what I understand, it's a 50% chance Absolutely. for yes. each child. Because, yes, there is a 50% chance uh, for for the kids to have that mutation if the parent has it. And that's because each of us get one set of genes from each parent. But in your mom's case, both you and your sister had it. So yes. it's, a, it's a little higher than it it's should cute. be. Yes. Yeah, so, but you both... Individually, uh, we each had a 50% chance right. and, and it just turned out. Unfortunately, right. it was weird. Okay. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back to talk about the connection between obesity and breast cancer, which is one of your areas of research that you specialize in. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. We're back talking with Sagar about the link between obesity and the increased risk for breast cancer. So fill us in on your research and this, this link. 
so to give you a background, obesity uh, is a well-known risk factor, not just for breast cancer, but several other solid tumors. Uh, the, the data comes, uh, the, the strongest data comes from the WHI or the Women's Health Initiative randomized trials that looked at about 60,000 women um, and uh, with varying degrees of their body weight and BMIs. And what we know is women, especially postmenopausal women, who have a BMI of more than 25, or what we typically define as being overweight, had an increased risk of breast cancer that was linear in proportion to their BMI. What I mean by that is for women who are overweight, that which is typically a BMI of between 25 and 30, that risk was in the range of about 10 to 20 percent higher than women who had a normal body weight. Uh, and in, in when you look at obesity, which is typically a BMI of more than 30, uh, the risk was much higher in the range of 30 to 40 percent for those women compared to women who had a normal body weight. Uh, so the obesity is a risk factor specifically for postmenopausal women, uh, as we know it right now, and, and specifically for the more common form of breast cancer that we see, which is the estrogen-driven or estrogen-positive breast cancer. So just to make sure I'm understanding, women who are obese, particularly women who are postmenopausal, which would be, what, 50 and above, roughly, yes, are 20 to 40 percent, have a, have a 20 to 40 percent higher risk of developing breast cancer. Yes, compared than, to women. The, the wide range of millions of women. Wow. Right, right. Wow. That's okay. Why is that? What is the link? What is How does your body change as you gain weight that creates the... The, the route for cancer? So I think that's a great question. And that's a question that I think what uh, our research is trying to understand, and like many others, um, obese women often tend to have higher t- total circulating levels of estrogen, which is what was thought to be uh, a, a, the reason for their risk for breast cancer. Uh, but I, I think there's more to that story just b- besides having increased estrogen in the body. So obesity increases uh, uh, systemic inflammation. And we know that based on several studies that show that obese uh, patients are more likely to have inflammatory markers in the body compared to non-obese or uh, people with a healthy BMI. Um, And this goes back to patients with diabetes, patients with metabolic syndrome, uh, where we see that inflammation plays a key role in carcinogenesis or the formation of tumors and development of tumor growth and metastases. Now, when you say inflammation, I think like I sprain my ankle and it swells up. Is that what you mean or is it a different type of inflammation as you gain weight? So a good question again. So when you sprain your ankle, you're often talking about a process called acute inflammation. What we are referring to with obesity is a chronic or a persistent low-grade inflammation that's propagated by all of these inflammatory markers, uh, insulin resistance in the body, which eventually alters the environment in the breast tissue. That can lead to breast cancer and then metastases. Wow. Okay. So... Obviously, your research is looking at the connection between obesity and and the increased risk of breast cancer and and some other diseases like heart disease and diabetes. But mm-hmm. why, when you figure it out, you and others around the country, when you figure out this link, that will then lead you to create better treatments or more preventative? Like what will happen once you target like why it's causing it? 
So we are still not clear with the mechanisms of obesity and breast cancer pathogenesis or the reasons why obese women get breast cancer. Uh, once we have a better understanding of these molecular pathways, uh, there would be more targets that we could identify in terms of prevention. Right. More yeah. importantly, I think obesity, we know, is also a risk factor for breast cancer mortality. So women who have a history of breast cancer or a diagnosis of breast cancer are more likely to have inferior outcomes with if they are obese. Uh, so I think it could also identify potential pathways for treatment in the future for women with breast cancer. So that's the key is the more you can understand, the better you can treat patients. And I'm sorry, did you say that once a woman is diagnosed with breast cancer, that the obesity is a factor in, in her long-term survival rate? Is that meaning that it, you encourage women to lose to lose weight and that can help? Absolutely. So women with a diagnosis of breast cancer, obesity at the time of their breast cancer diagnosis has been linked to worse breast cancer survival and breast, can and breast cancer specific mortality. Um, and uh, there is a national study that's ongoing, which is also open at Ohio State. It's called the Be Well Trial, which aims at reducing body weight through diet and exercise. Right. Uh, and the main endpoint of the study is they're trying to see if that reduces distant recurrence or metastases from breast cancer and helps women live longer. So, of course, everyone would love to lose weight, but it's difficult. You have lifelong habits. You might have a sedentary lifestyle or job. I mean, that's hard to just say, you know, lose X amount of pounds that everyone needs a little help in that direction. And I couldn't agree more. I think weight loss is very individual. Uh, weight loss therapies have to be tailored. Uh, as, as you just said, that it's different for different people. Um, you could have a single mom who's trying to, with, who's dealing with breast cancer. On the other hand, you could have a person who has enough resources um, to put in time and money towards weight loss. Uh, and I think each individual is 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 going at their own pace and needs different resources. So it has to be, it's not a blanket approach when you think about weight loss saying that, hey, you need to exercise 150 minutes a week um, or you know you need to eat better and better diet quality. I think it needs a team effort in terms, and it really takes a village. Um, when you think about weight loss, there are a lot of people who are involved uh, besides the physician and the patient. You're here, you're talking about a dietitian, um, exercise physiologists, you're talking about health coaches and more intensive monitoring where patients can, as well as social workers and counselors who can help with motivating patients, keep that motivation going, and at the same time, make sure that they're taking the right approach to diet and exercise. Oh, it's interesting that you mentioned motivation because I'm sure that diagnosis of you have breast cancer is, is life-changing and some women may find it difficult to find the motivation. They, they, depression is, is, I'm sure happens a lot. So how do you kind of deal with that sort of mental aspect of, of helping your patients? Um, so I, I, so most women with, with breast cancer diagnosis, as you said, are going through a lot. Uh, treatments, radiation, uh, just the, the fact of, you know, their body changing. A lot of this leads to, uh, leads to what, what we typically see in women is depression. And some of these therapies make it harder for them to go through weight loss uh, when they're on anti-estrogen uh, pills. Yeah. Um, so, and that's where I think it needs a team effort, where you have to work with, with counselors and, and a good support team, including a nursing team and a physician, um, to make sure that we're on the right path. 
And here at the James and at the Spielman Center, you have that whole team in place. Absolutely. Yeah. We're blessed to have those resources, um, uh, include, you know, a, a dedicated psychosocial team uh, for our breast cancer patients and a dietitian that, that's working with solely with our breast cancer patients with the goal to make sure that they're going through a healthy lifestyle. Now, I know you're not a dietitian or a physical therapist or an exercise coach, but can you sort of sum up the advice that you and and those specialists would would give to a woman to help give them some guidance on how to eat healthier and and make exercise a a regular part of their lives? You have to start somewhere at the the national guidelines say that, you know, the, the recommendation is 150 minutes of some form of aerobic exercise, which could be a week, a, 150 minutes a week, 150 right? minutes okay. a Not week, a day. <laughs> 150 minutes a week of some form of aerobic exercise, which could be brisk walking, um, which is usually turns out to be at 30 minutes, five times a week. Um, training, it, training for Pelotonia would be a great tra- one. <laughs> I, yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's important to start somewhere. I, I really tell my patients that you don't have to meet that 150 minute a week goal starting now. Uh, it's, oh, you can build up to it. You build up to it. And especially when you're going through treatments, if you could incorporate at least two strength training sessions a week, that's what we would recommend. That's something that's been studied and has shown to improve overall functional capacity and again, weight loss. And again, strength and a little bit of cardiovascular exercise are going to help you as you're going through treatment. Absolutely. How about diet? What's I, I think I sort of have a know what that is, but what what do you recommend to people about what is a healthy diet? We get several questions about what kinds of foods should we eat. Uh, are there some foods that increase the risk of breast cancer and yeah. should be staying away from? Uh, if if you really look at diet, I think it's the total number of calories and and improving diet quality. So what we would typically say is, if your aim is weight loss, you should think about a calorie deficit in your diet, amounting about five hundred calories a day, um, depending re- on your ideal body weight, reducing uh, ideal in calorie intake, reducing what you're taking in by about five hundred five hundred calories, okay. which it would be a major meal a day. Um, and you don't have to give up a major meal, yes, but, but just healthier, less calorie filled choices over the course of the day. Fewer portions, but more frequently is what oh, I, okay. how I would say it. Fewer portions, more frequently. Okay. A better diet quality, which really refers to, you know, more fruits and vegetables. So increasing your fiber yeah. intake, okay. uh, going down on the saturated fat intake to less than about 10 to 15% of your total fat, of your total calorie intake. Um, and making sure that you're moderate on your carbohydrates and proteins. And the typical protein recommendation is about a gram uh, per kilogram. Wait, what does that mean? A gram? A gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. Oh, okay. And a kilogram is 2.2 pounds. Right. So, okay. So a gram of of protein a day per... 2.2 2.2 pounds. So if you weigh, just to make the math. About half a gram per pound. Per pound. Okay. Yeah. Half a gram. Okay. Got it. So obviously in, in listening to you talk about your family's experience, your research, the patients you see, you're very passionate about this. And it seems like this is what you were meant to do, that your life sort of led you in this direction into the James and to working with uh, women and with, with breast cancer. Is it, is that about right? <laughs> So when I saw my mom fight through cancer, I think at the time of her diagnosis, it 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 was hard at in the beginning because you know we were going back to my grandmother and her treatments and knowing that you know she was going to go through the same chemotherapy, but that experience from my mom was very different from what what we saw with my grandma, and and that made me see that in twenty years in two decades oncology had changed a lot. 10 right. years from my yeah. mom's diagnosis, here we are now knowing that there is a mutation that runs in my family, a BRCA2 that's probably making 
or increasing the risk for my relatives to have cancer. Oncology is moving at a really fast pace, and it's an exciting time to be in research. I think for a woman to have a BRCA2 mutation and not know about it and be diagnosed with cancer is a huge disservice to that that person. Um, I think we need to move towards broader testing so that eventually all women with BRCA2 mutations are taking the right steps to cancer prevention, and really no woman with BRCA1 or 2 mutations should die of cancer. Right. They should all know they have it, get the screenings early. If they get cancer detected so early that the treatment is going to be, it just has a, a tremendous success rate. And for women with BRCA1 or 2, there are other options such as, you know, thinking about prophylactic mastectomy mm-hmm. uh, and oophorectomies to even reduce the risk drastically in the first place. That's a great point. And thank you for sharing your family story and and the research you're doing. And hopefully this will be uh, information that a lot of women out there can um, use to help them and their family members and understand uh, breast cancer and BRCA and uh, the link between um, obesity and breast cancer. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.